0: Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad that you have come along. Today, we have a good show for you. I'm excited to talk about a book that is very important. It talks about the common, mundane things of life. And I think you're going to find this really helpful. I'm thankful that Wesley Biblical Seminary is the sponsor of this podcast, where we are training trusted leaders for faithful churches. That means we are training people in the great tradition of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And that happens through a variety of programs from bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees. Secondly, Oh, well also you need to know you can find out about WBS, and that is at WBS. Dot edu secondly i'm thankful to bill roberts who is a financial planner who sponsors this podcast he is a financial planner who helps people think about their futures in a way so that they can start to prepare for it even like as early as in their 20s and he is particularly good with helping people who are in ministry positions people have to calculate things like housing allowances and how they prepare for that so you can find out more about him at williamhroberts.com you can find information about him in my show notes as well and finally, I would love to share a resource with people if you sign up for my email list at andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. And this little tool that I'll share with you is called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. It's a video kind of mini course that I offer as well as a PDF document that you can use as you prepare yourself to teach and preach and to do so in a way that connects with your audience effectively. So I am excited now to bring in my guest, Dr. Brent Waters, who serves at the Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary as the Stead Professor of Christian Social Ethics. Dr. Waters, welcome to the podcast.
1: I do oh, think you were having me.
0: Well, you were the second guest on my podcast that I had my, uh, more than 100 episodes ago, the Captain's Corner podcast and your book uh, on capitalism. And it was interesting that podcasted and we connected a little bit there you connected me to the steads who are the name of the professorship and the center you lead um they became really important people to me and find out and come to find out that they were uh they are de- he is a descendant of wt stead who was an early uh influencer on the salvation army so i'm curious to uh do you have much interaction with the steads or what do they what do they mean to you
1: well, yes, they were they were my benefactors. At, at you know at, having spent twenty one years at, at Garrett, um, they were also very generous, both in their financial support and in their time and in their their uh, spiritual support of what I was doing. Um, remarkable people, very generous people. Um, but you know they they spent uh, time in the corporate world a world that they introduced me to that I wasn't familiar with, but uh, helped helped me on a number of occasions. Um, my life was just basically very blessed by getting to know the Steads. and I'm, I'm very glad that you were able to have that interaction with with Will because they. It seems that no matter where they go, they do good, mm. and and the place is just better off for having them there.
0: Yeah, and it's it, it's interesting how that's a part of their family legacy as well, like. Mm-hmm his great-great-grandfather or whatever the connection is, I'm not quite sure, was somebody who worked with William and Catherine Booth to raise the age of, of consent in England. Um, they were He was somebody who uh, helped him design the In Darkest England scheme, which the Salvation Army's social work today, which is primarily what the Salvation Army is known for, um, is an outgrowth of that program. And it would never have happened without WT Stead.
1: So. Right. And, and w- one other quick story about them. Yeah, have you, have you ever watched a football game that's being broadcast from Iowa City, Iowa, the University of Iowa? I have not. Well, sometimes you do that, you'll notice particularly at night, they will turn to a building behind the stadium and they'll all turn on their iPad uh, lights or the okay. iPhone lights. What it is, is that there's a children's hospital that looks into the football field and on a certain floor, every game, they bring the children in to watch the game and that entire children's hospital was built by the Stiff. Wow. And that's, that's the kind of, you know, generosity that they have is to give something back to their alma mater, which is the university of Iowa. And to do it through one of now one of the world's premier children's hospitals.
0: Amazing. And I know that part of the way he came in con- they came in contact with um, you is through Garrett and he, I know he was the board chair at mm-hmm. Garrett for a period. So um, and now it's, I think even is engaged with the Salvation Army to a certain degree and it is fascinating people. It's amazing. This is a part of what you what you and I have talked about both times, even in your capitalism book because um, I remember, and, and then in this book too, that we're going to talk about common call, callings and ordinary virtues is recognizing what, what sometimes theologians, you know, people like you and me who are working in the Academy might think our, our task is the most important thing, but in some ways it's, what's happening uh, for most of people's lives all around them. That's so important. Right. And, and it, I remember you talking to me last time about your father-in-law, him as a businessman, having a, an influence on you, you recognizing the amount of good, he was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that's some of, the, some of what even is behind, would you say, well, let me, I'm, I'm reading into a little bit what's even behind this book, Common Callings?
1: Yes. I mean, I really wanted to, to think through how, how do we love our neighbors? And one of the right. ways that we meet our neighbors or love our neighbors is to meet their physical and material needs.
2: Hmm.
1: And that, that's a very important process because none of us can do it on our own. I mean, uh, we we need one another just you know to, to do that. Either it's in the marketplace, or it's in families, or it's in organizations. Um, it's it's kind of a myth of autonomy. Mm. Uh, really, we're very dependent upon one another, and I think God created us that way, precisely that way, uh, to, to to say, okay, you need one another to so learn how to love one another. Wow, and, and 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 how we do that is is through these daily interactions. And what really cemented that was two things was, I mean, first of all, we we kind of alluded to it was that as a moral theologian, I spent most of my time thinking about abstractions or thinking about big issues that I never had any firsthand experience with. So I then began to realize I largely ignore where I live and where I spend my time. There's something wrong about this struck me as being intuitively wrong. And then the thing, the the practical one that really cemented that was having spent a month in the hospital in in recovery and and working with the nurses, as I realized I was utterly dependent upon people for my most basic needs, eating, going to the bathroom, exercising. And I realized, okay, maybe it is for the mundane, the the daily day in and day out out chores that we do exhibit a love of, of, of neighbor because we utterly depend upon one another. Absolutely. I,
0: I I say absolutely, but this is a hard lesson to learn. Okay? And I, I wish I like I ag- I agree with you in like is a way it makes me say amen. At the same time, recognizing the, the holiness of every moment is not something that comes easily. You yeah. have this interesting sentence in um, on page 11. You, you say it is in the mundane, mind numbing. Boring and tedious chores of taking care of ourselves and others—that we catch glimpses of what God created us to be. Really, in the boring things, is that? Come on, I I like to think of the big moments. Like I want to—I want when I'm on stage or when everybody's recognizing me. But can it? How does it happen in these these mundane moments that we find this is who God's calls to be?
1: Because I think that's that what we find then is that's how we really learn to be simultaneously of service and to be hospitable mm. that we really we take people for who they are and what they are and not try to just simply dismiss them because they get in the way of us being extraordinary. Mm. Um, I mean, <laughs> um, so, so it's it's really in those those moments i mean I, to me again, one of those early experiences was you know. <laughs> I had to change a diaper, you know, here I am as a trained theologian and I have to really, you know, spend my time changing <laughs> diaper, you know, but then I realized, well, this is how I love my daughter at this age. Yeah. That's really meeting what what is her need. Um, so I think, yeah. I, and I, it, I'm also remembering that, you know, I, I, I taught in a seminary. And one of the things I wish I had been, I'd caught onto this earlier was the same root of the word ordinary is the same root of the word ordination.
0: Oh, interesting. I never even thought of that. Yeah. yeah.
1: So maybe maybe ordination means is we teach you how to be faithfully ordinary. Wow. Um, Which means day in and day out, you're there to serve the needs of your people.
0: This is starting to make more sense to me. Uh, Last time we talked, I remember um, we talked about capitalism and uh, we talk about the, the nature of markets and how they can be used for the good. And this is this was re- really helpful for me to think about even helping people when I was serving full time in the Salvation Army, helping people get out of homelessness and the like. And I I asked you, um, well, what what's next? Like how does this connect to something else? And and you say, <laughs> you said, my next is to really look at the significance of doing the dishes with my wife. <laughs> It it reminded me of George W. Bush. When he retired, he said that uh, Laura said to him, now it's uh, time for my next domestic agenda. And she handed him uh, a a towel. (laughs) Is is, is that what are there things that we can do while we do these mundane things to help us see their significance?
1: yeah, I think there is. I mean, it's just sit back and 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 pay attention to what's going on around you. I mean that's it's, that's the beauty of someone like you know what Iris Murdoch talks about of being attentive to the neighbor is the best way to be attentive is to really focus on and try to discover what are the real needs of this neighbor that i'm I'm now in contact with.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think
1: you know Murdoch wrote, I think, one of the most memorable sentences in twentieth century moral philosophy when she says, the great enemy of, uh, of, of, F, of ethics is the fat, relentless ego. Mm. And, and we have to learn to unself in order to serve the neighbor. And I think that that's, you know, one of the ways we learn what the other's needs are is to really focus. Okay, well, what are their most basic physical needs? What are there? You know, I mean, I think it's very hard to evangelize if someone's hungry. Right you know the first thing you need to do is feed them you know um, people need sleep they need rest they need all these kinds of things and I think you know living in households of other people you begin to learn how, how basic these needs are um, I mean one of the things I discovered I mean we had talked privately about this you know in, in the 21 years that I, I worked in Evanston I still lived in Pittsburgh so I commuted yeah, and, uh, yeah. My my wife wasn't really happy about that, but she did say, "Well, your domestic skills have improved considerably in, in making this arrangement." Because I quickly discovered, you know, those dishes just don't get magically washed on their own. Mm. <laughs> um, you've got you've got to do them. And then I was thinking through, okay, you're not only doing this for yourself, but you're doing it for other people who might be in the household, mm. or or preparing for guests or something like that. So it's it's almost everything we do. I think there's some component where it does serve the neighbor and, and we need to be mindful of that and be attentive to that and to realize that, you know, the things that we may dismiss as being tedious and boring can actually be profoundly revelatory. Wow.
0: Um, it, it can be ordained, so to speak. Yes, yes. This is uh, if I saw like a repeated words certainly a word that comes up time and time again is mundane. If I saw a repeated name in your book, Murdoch is one that comes up regularly. So mm-hmm. uh, this is a new author to me. Mm-hmm. So could you talk to me a little about? Are uh, you it's Iris Murdoch? I and That line. So tell me a little bit about. Uh, I imagine this is a female, Iris. It is. <laughs> yeah. Um, tell me about her.
1: Yeah, she she was trained as a philosopher at Oxford University. Uh, uh a, a kind of Anglo-Irish uh, woman. She um, wrote, I think, four or five books in formal philosophy, but ended up writing around twenty-four or twenty-five novels. Right. She really found fiction as a way, as, as a good way. And what, what's amazing about her her fiction is how much she pays attention to the common, ordinary details, and brings that alive. Because then you realize, well, she's really talking about you and how you and I live. Mm. And in her moral philosophy, which I find okay, it, I'm not. I'm not going to try to say that she was a closet Christian. She wasn't, but she was one of those 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 wise philosophers that you can kind of plunder to help you understand your your your, your Christianity better. And I think that one one of her messages that was very congenial was was when she's dealing with with people, um, she spends a lot of time talking about good and evil. But the characters you encounter in a Murdoch novel, they're usually not wicked.
2: Hmm. They're usually
1: just morally clumsy. Hmm. And it has, I think it echoes Augustine's teaching about disordered desire. What gets us into trouble is that we desire good things badly. Hmm. And because, and I think a lot of it is, again, we don't pay attention to the details and that fat, relentless ego gets in the way of everything. And we really want people to serve us rather than being attentive to their needs and serving them. So that's that's why, you know, I think with Murdoch, I keep going back to her because she gives gives these insights. And then and then and and in her her novels, I've used them to teach Christian ethics because it's a it's a way of tricking students into thinking (laughs) theologically. You have to kind of unpack the story uh, that's going on there.
0: What which which novel would you recommend first? of hers or one or two of them.
1: The Bell. Okay, one of her early novels. And that's, that's about a, a community that falls apart because it doesn't know how to be a community mm. and it's you a know, good object. Lesson. The good and the nice is okay. because, okay. because those two don't are equivalent and then uh, an accidental man, I think. Is okay. one. So.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, that. I want, I want to check those out. I'm interested to like, I've already brought the, uh, doing the dishes, but you said something at, about what. I'd like you to repeat this line. We 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 started to go on this podcast once and I had a little uh, audio trouble, but you mentioned this line and I wanted to make sure to get it in something about when we get to heaven, we might be surprised about oh, what yeah. God brings up about election night.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we're, we have this view of God that somehow God's only interested in the extraordinary. When, when in fact, I think, you know, God would kind of laugh and say, "Well, I'm the only one that's extraordinary, um, and the rest <laughs> of us are actually quite ordinary." And then, therefore, you know, how are we? How are we faithfully ordinary? Mm, faithfully. So, what I would what I would um, tell my students, sometimes, is say, you know, on the day of judgment, when we stand before God, we may be surprised, and maybe even a little irritated, that we're not asked, "Who did you vote for in the tumultuous election of 2020?"
2: <laughs>
1: and instead very surprised when we were commended for that evening that we had forgotten about when uh, it wasn't our turn to do the dishes but we did them anyway because our spouse was tired and needed to rest Mm. and that's what's really commended what we did not not the extraordinary things I mean uh, I mean I'm quite certain God's not going to commend me for any lecture I've ever given
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh I don't think that's true
1: well (laughs) we'll find out (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: I've never heard you lecture, but I mean, certainly your books. I mean, there there is, I imagine, and not uh, a, your writing, you know, when you're having a really good footnote, um, there's something to that that is mundane, right? That you might not really want to do or even the scholarly discipline that you've entered into. I mean, I would um, – this is my – trying to exhort you a little bit in Jesus's name. And I mean, I mean, encourage is like some of the way as an academic that you serve the world is like, maybe it's not primarily even just who read your books. It's like the people who read your books and then take your ideas and hopefully try to communicate them and then realize that there's something important about doing the dishes. Uh, so, right. and, and that came through a mundane process of moral, uh, theology that you've entered into and you've given your life to so I just want to commend you <laughs> that like there is something important about your work and it's helping me see it like I'm I'm one who just maybe I have my to-do list and I want to get it done like I want to I want to move through those mundane things but you're causing me to think there's something more that I need to maybe look around and see what's going on as I do that what God's saying to me in the midst of that you mentioned um, one of the chapters you have has to do, and I was surprised to see it, manners. That manners are our are, are way we describe this. Now, I, I was, yeah, yeah, go ahead and talk to me about that. I won't just give my impression of it. I'm, I'm curious to talk about that manners chapter, why those are important.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and that, I approach that chapter with a lot of trepidation because I, I'm I'm very aware that manners can be misused. We We use it to keep people in their place. And that's a misuse of manners. I mean, manners were invented to make people feel at ease, to feel comfortable, so that there were ground rules. So, you know, you 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 knew to use your knife and fork at the table and, and not, not to, you know, use your hands and throw and throw food at each other. So it was a way of, of, of just doing that. But I think manners are, are, more, are important from the standpoint that if virtue is habitual behavior, then manners is the precursor to virtue. Because it teaches, I mean, because habits, I mean, Manners only become effective when they become habitual. Um, so that if you're treat, if you're taught at a young age that you always respect your elders, then that just becomes second nature. Mm-hmm. And you know, later in life, you you don't even hesitate. You you help that that elderly lady cross the street if she needs if she needs help. It's not something you think about. It's just part of your life, part of, part of how you treat uh, people. So I think manners are have been neglected, and I think that you know we're we're paying a price right now.
0: Wow, how are we paying a price?
1: I think a an incivility which is now passing as normal and acceptable,
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, a
1: kind of uh, a callousness toward one another, a a, dis, a profound disrespect, um, and it's becoming acceptable. And I think you know some of that's social media, but but I think a lot of it is simply two people we just. We let we let children off off the hook when they, you know, act in ways they ought not to act because it's ill mannered. Yeah, and yeah. It's uh, like I said. I, I think I think you do pay a price for these things.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say like uh, the relationship of manners and habits. Manners and habits then lead their. Uh, maybe I had the wrong word. Have the wrong word but a precursor to virtue. Yes. So those things are kind of like the rhythms that you have that enable virtue to be realized is that the idea?
1: yes yes okay. or and 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 to be and to be formed in a, because you have in a sense you've done the preliminary work yeah so, uh, for example, um, you know, in in the virtue of prudence, which is doing the right things for the right reasons, um, is one of the things you learn in, in manners is to respect those who are giving an opinion. And you learn to listen to that opinion and to weigh it and to judge it. Um, well, that's a precursor to what prudence is, because you you talk to people who are wise in order to make 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 your decisions. So I think, you know, I think it's easier to teach virtues to people who have been taught manners than it is you know just trying to teach them cold turkey what a virtue is yeah that makes sense yeah. and i think people that don't that are ill-mannered are, are more inclined toward the vices interesting
0: and, and yeah you talk about obviously this is moral theology so you talk about vices a fair amount uh, what what are some of the i mean there's a lot uh, mm-hmm. What are some of the vices you have in mind that need to be avoided. You talked a little bit about it, about the kind of caustic nature of yeah. maybe social media and those types, but are other, th- other things that you see other vices that having the appropriate manners or valuing the mundane can be a guard against?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, the, the two biggest vices are pride and gluttony mm. and and those are perennial and, and we always have to fight against those. I, I think, you know, there's a whole list of vices in there, you know, lust is another one and how do you control that? Um, my favorite vice that's uh, hardly ever mentioned anymore is vainglory. You know, <laughs> the vain the vainglorious person who wants to always attract attention to, to himself and, and and take credit for things that really ought not to take credit for. Mm, mm. Um, and now the interesting thing about vice is that it's much more entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> and otherwise it wouldn't be tempting.
0: Interesting. Yeah,
1: it's much easier, uh, and and you know, because if we really recognize vice and are appalled by it, then it wouldn't be a problem. But that's mm-hmm. you know, that's the that's the ins, insidious nature of temptation is that you're being tempted by things which are actually very pleasant. Wow,
0: and draw you in. Yes. I um, was um I've just done a study on the book of Jude, and the reason I've done that is that it gives a clear way to speak. Toward the sexual revolution and its impact on our society, and so it's a six-week series that I put together. Um, and uh, Michael Green, he was a New Testament scholar and an apologist. Um, he he said something interesting there. It, it, like he, lust is a huge issue in Jude. It's hard to see see it because it comes through in the comparisons that Jude uses. But this little line that Michael Green uses uh really helpful to me. Uh, he said. That lust in itself is self-defeating. Lust in itself is self-defeating. So it kind of highlights this idea that what you're, even though it's appealing, whatever it is, the vices, (laughs) vainglory, right? If I could just have that, then I'll be in good shape. Like if I could just have the attention given to me, then I'll have what I deserve. Again, going back to pride. But at the same time, you have this like desire. It's something that you want. Like it looks good. But if you actually get it, it's going to hurt
1: you. Yes. And and I think also the thing to remember about vice is that the appetite, the desire can never be satisfied. Mm. There, there is always more. And that's a very frustrating life to live when you can never be satisfied. Right.
0: And and, and my work with those who have, um, and when, when I was with the Savish Army, working with those who are dealing with addictions, it just was... So clear. Um it, it, the Salvation Army is a, as a denomination, is a teetotaling denomination. And uh so if people who join as members and as pastors, you know, commit to not drink. But uh, a lot of there's a lot of resistance to that, as there is any teetotaling group. Uh and but I think the reason it's held in the Salvation Army is not because of some prohibitionist cause. I think it's because most Salvation Army congregations where there are testimonies, are inter- you're interacting with people who have, um, and this was my experience. Like I was hearing every Sunday of my life of pretty much somebody whose life was ruined by drugs and alcohol. Right. Right. And, and so I think that that's why that's maintained is because uh, what's happened is it's not. It's not going to be. It's going to continue to be present. It's never going to be satisfied, like you said. So, it, it, is it in recognizing the holiness of the mundane that that we can even have um, a tonic for these uh, vices? Is that what you're suggesting throughout this book?
1: I think so. And and it, this is where I, I really need a, a stronger doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, because it's that's where I think that that work. I mean, I would even go so far as to say it, it's it's in dealing with the mundane, you're on the road towards sanctification. Amen. Yeah. Um, and you know, and that's why to be to be faithful to the mundane, to the ordinary, is really a, a, it's a school in holiness. Hmm. And. I love it um like i said now i'm 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 not very articulate on this because out of my tradition you know we we're very skeptical of anything that smacks of enthusiasm so um it's and 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 this is where what tradition's
0: I, uh, that. Uh, what what tradition do you come from
1: uh well basically uh congregational you know puritan okay period. Uh, okay yeah <laughs> so, um um so it's it's part of that notion that I think you know. My next step on this would be to have some conversations with 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 uh, you know people come out for tradition where the Holy Spirit plays more of a role. You know the, the charismatic, the Pentecostal, um, and to really say, okay, what where do we need to incorporate the life of the Spirit in the life of the ordinary? And my hunch is that they're not too far away.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean,
1: I think we've made a, an artificial divide between the two. Um, which, which, and we always get in trouble when we make artificial divides. It's like when we try to divide Sunday from Monday, when we try yes. to divide work from leisure and and, and those kinds of things. We, those are artificial and then they don't really help us. My hunch is the same thing is when we try to divide the life of the spirit or the spiritual life from the life of the ordinary and the mundane, we're actually going to run into trouble.
2: Because mm,
1: mm-hmm. after all, it is one life that we live. I, I think if
0: there's something to that, that connection with, even when you're saying holiness um you know you think of holiness also being connected to wholeness like the mm-hmm. the complete work and in, and in my tradition the we think of holiness as something that comes as a result of the work of the holy spirit being actively engaged in all all of life and it, it uh to get on to another chapter you have like if we're thinking that, that all of life matters the mundane matters this is all a part of what is holy and in the the experience of sanctification is a part of that expression um you have a you have a chapter on appearance where you talk about clothing and i just want to read a little section uh i thought this is a good that the things i love about your both the books i've read of yours is that they have little zingers like this that catch me off guard so if somebody's just see me reading it they'll just see me start to giggle to myself i don't know giggles the right word but so for instance clothing is a i'm reading here from page 202 if somebody wants to find it clothing is a primary instrument of such mediation our lives and here's a philosophical statement of course our lives unfold over time within clothing and then this very important footnote i assume there are exceptions to this general rule such as nudists and naked sleepers there it is (laughs) and what's important about our clothing this is actually like our clothing actually communicates our ethics and our holiness
1: yeah, I think it does. I think it, it communicates, at least to the very minimum, the esteem that we hold others.
2: Mm-hmm. Because,
1: I mean, I, I don't think, I think the notion that you dress for success is actually wrong. Actually, what you dress for is how you want to honor the people that you're with mm-hmm. and, and and the level of respect that you hold for them. So the example I think I, I use in the book is that if I show up to class every day with a dirty t-shirt and a pair of jeans, what I'm really telling my students is I don't hold them very high esteem.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because yeah. I don't even I don't even take the time to you know get dressed. Uh, where that's why I went out of my way to always come to class, you know, coat and tie or suit to say you know uh, this is important what we're talking about, and I hold you in you know uh, as students as to a level that I want want to engage you as 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 people who I care about, hmm. and, and and I think you know uh, it, clothing is the first step in in, in portraying that.
0: Right. This is one of those things, like you said, we, where we spend most of our time. Mm-hmm. We spend all of our time, except for nudist colonies and naked sleepers, <laughs> in clothes, mm-hmm. And our, our clothes communicate. I mean, I, this is I never thought I would read a chapter uh, and theological ethics about how our our clothes <laughs> communicate a theological message. And I think it's true. Uh, so that that's what I'm really encouraged by this book. And it, it makes me and, and, and I'm just highlighting a few of the areas you walk through, like the um, relationships um, and the way that our the regularity of our relationships communicate these ideas, but then also the activities of work, household, uh, homework, manners, appearance, I talked about those eating. leisure, all of these things are a part of the way that we um, express the life that God's called us to live. So I I, thank you so much for writing this book. And I encourage people to get it um, at Baker Academic. One of the questions I always ask uh, Dr. Waters is that in my podcast, I ask folks um, with the name of my podcast, more to the story. If there is more to the story of Brent Waters, then you normally get to say, like, maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's one of these ordinary things that you don't get to talk about um, very often. And, and I, I have a double, two reasons for that. One is I, I call it more to the story because I look at it as a part of sanctification. There's more to the story of salvation than just getting our sins forgiven. But also, I just love the idea of like, hearing something a little bit more about you than you normally get to tell. So is there more to the story of Brent Waters?
1: Well, I suppose there I, there is. I mean, okay, one, one of the things that I did in this book too consciously was I drew almost the vast majority of my illustrations I, I drew from um, novels, from fiction. And um, And I think it's because stories are terribly important, the stories we tell, the stories we read. So I think, in many respects, I'm a frustrated novelist.
2: Okay. Um,
1: and maybe in retirement, I mean, since many of my colleagues, when I was on the faculty, already accused me of writing fiction, I might as well go ahead, <laughs> you know, try to write a novel. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm going to toy with that. I don't know, but it's. Uh, but I think what, at, at the very least, uh, what's more to the more to the story is basically story. Mm um yeah. that how do how do we live our lives as, as faithful stories so one of the things i'm dealing with and i think it's partly because of my age too i'm dealing with questions of finitude and mortality and those are not morbid topics it's really in the notion of saying okay how 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 do we bring our lives to a fitting end and it's like a story you know you've got to have that good final chapter um, really, really make the story successful so how, how do you know what are the things now that i want to order my life life around, you know, because I realized since I'm no longer on the sunny side of the mortality slope, um, (laughs) quit, quit saying someday, if it's important do it. Wow.
0: So what, um, what are some of those types of things here? I'm 42 years old trying to figure out like how I do that. You know, I have, um, what are, uh, those things you're not saying someday to anymore?
1: Um, certain Certain kinds of, I mean, just uh, again, ordinary things. Um, you know, my wife and I, we want to do some traveling. Yeah. So you know, quit, quit putting it off. Just go do it. Um, you know, find the time to do it. Um, other kinds of things. I can't put off my knee replacement surgery anymore. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, that's, sure, that's,
1: that's coming down in a few weeks. So it's 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 now. It's not so much a sense of urgency, but also but a sense of saying I'm not going to spend my time doing other things that I used to think were important, but I now see them as distractions.
2: Hmm. Hmm.
1: So, um, am I terribly worried about you know my academic reputation anymore? No, not really. Um, you know. It's, it's not that I, I discount that, but it's just not that high on the list of priorities anymore.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: it's it's more of just spending time with people that um, I love and enjoy.
0: Yeah, I I think that all I I, I haven't ever had a question when I, I ask that question on every podcast, and sometimes I've had people talk about UFOs and scuba diving or that type of thing, <laughs> but I've never had the question dovetail so well uh, to the subject that I've. I've talked about as, as when you used answer it there, I mean, it just fits in with what this call is in general. I think it's funny too. Like um, you said that your, your colleagues accuse you of writing fiction, the, your book on capitalism. I think it was a section is like two and a half cheers for capitalism. It was a, not what you'd expect uh, uh, somebody teaching on a theological faculty to write this pretty much positive view on capitalism, but it was, I mean, it was, it, that's a, I should encourage people to find that book too. That, Honestly, I came out of, uh, I, out of my own educational process almost like this strange socialist of sorts, where mm-hmm. I was—I thought I was going to redistribute the wealth and all these sort of things—and that was the nature of the Salvation Army, just give everything. But what I really—and you—you helped me see this, like um, the way people get out of poverty, and and the way that we actually show preferential treatment to the poor, this great Christian tradition is by helping them get access to the market. And then that gives an opportunity to witness it. I mean, so again, thank you for that insight and the insight from this book too. Um, I appreciate your work and I'm glad that you don't care as much about your academic reputation, that you're gonna spend time doing the dishes and doing those mundane things to the glory of God.
1: Right, well, uh, yes, I, I that's, that's the plan anyway.
0: Well, thanks for your time, Dr. Waters. It means a lot to me to have you on this podcast, and I appreciate your time and your work.
1: Thank you.